Welcome to Hey Siri. My name is Tom Siri. I'm your host. I am so excited to have you here because this is a show that takes you far beyond what your phone can tell you. I am the original Siri after all. We are going to talk to amazing guests, interesting people who really help us as small business owners and entrepreneurs make better decisions or just have more insights than we did before we listen. So thank you for tuning in and I'm so excited to have you here. I have Laura Wood. Laura, welcome. Thank you, Tom. Excited to be here. Yeah. And Laura comes from the world as a licensed mental health counselor and has a a really unique perspective on really how we as individuals operate in our world and hopefully navigate some of the challenges we all experience in life, but as well as thinking about our staff and employees and how we can be maybe better leaders or more empathetic let alone if you're a parent or you have a partner and trying to optimize for that, which I know, Laura, I'm always trying to do with my kids. I'm trying to be a better parent all the time. And I don't know if I'm doing... I guess I'll find out later in life if I've done all right. (laughs) Being a parent is difficult and your kids are going to show you or tell you how great or not so great of a job you're doing. That's pretty daunting, but we'll see what happens. They're young, so I might have still some space and time to figure it out. Oh, you've got plenty of time. Yeah. Well, I would love to just hear more about from my audience, what they really would love to know. First of all, tell us a little bit about yourself. How long have you been a therapist? What kind of practice do you have? Are you part of a a group or are you independent? And what are you spending most of your time doing as a profession? So I've been in the field of mental health for the last 10 years. It's my 10-year anniversary this year, which is really exciting. Moved to Seattle a year ago and am now fully licensed in the state of Washington as a licensed mental health counselor. So I have a independent practice. I just opened March 1. So COVID has definitely been on the brain and on the mind and in the business but it's still an awesome time to be a business owner. It just means you got to pivot a little more than you thought you would have to. I spend most of my time seeing clients and people who are affected by trauma, whether it's small-scale trauma, large-scale trauma, everything from car accidents to chronic illness to earthquakes have shown up in my practice. And would you describe COVID as a moment of trauma? Because it's not quite something that just... Well, I guess it did come out of the blue in some ways for many people, but do you consider it a traumatic event or is it so lengthy that it actually should be classified in a different way from a mental health perspective? I feel that we're definitely going through a collective trauma. So, you know, we talk about collective traumas being things like earthquakes, natural disasters, periods of recession, like back in 2008, that was considered a collective trauma. We're all going through this collective trauma. We're all having our own individual experiences with it, but it's still traumatic. Mm. In terms of, certainly I've seen the traumatic effects of COVID, both at like sort of an individual level as well as organizational, including in my company and the customers we serve. But I was recently looking at the Seattle Times and there was a story about how a therapist was describing the pandemic as like an asteroid hitting Earth. And in terms of the anxiety we feel. Do you agree with that? Is that what you're seeing? Is it sort of a collective feeling that's coming about that sort of you would tie to anxiousness or anxiety? I think there's a mix of anxiety and grief. Anxiety because we don't know what's coming. We don't know the changes that are going to happen. We're in this great state of flux or unknown. And then grief because whether people have 
seen in their personal life, things that they're losing or at an organizational level, things are changing and we're experiencing loss. And a lot of the feelings that come from loss can show up as anxiety, that not knowing, that not being sure of things, that distrust in self, distrust in things, because that's loss. You lose your footing. Yeah, for sure. The rug has been pulled out from us collectively. My kids are young, so they don't really ask me these questions, but I don't know how I would really explain what is changing in the world and where we're going. Yeah. And even as a therapist, I've dealt with multiple traumas, multiple types of traumas. However, I missed the day in grad school where they talked about a global pandemic and how to deal with that. So even therapists right now, we have those tools to help with anxiety, to help with grief, to help with loss. But even we don't have a specific playbook for how this would happen. Wow. I hadn't thought of that. This is putting you in new territory. And I guess that's where I was going to go next is what are you hearing, seeing, observing with your, do you call them clients? Mm-hmm. Clients. With your clients. What are you hearing for the first time? Or maybe this is something that has been consistent in the past when I've helped people through trauma. So there's two things that are happening. My clients who experience high levels of anxiety feel like, oh my gosh, the outside world finally matches my inside world. And they're remarkably calm right now because they're like, oh, finally everybody gets how I feel. And then the other side of that is my clients who have trauma or grief or loss or anxiety who haven't dealt with such an extreme version of what we're going through are really showing signs of depression, post-traumatic stress, and being unable to cope with daily living and just having trouble getting out of bed, completing daily tasks. I've definitely seen that and observed that last part. The validating is interesting. I had not thought if that's a fair term to use, but sort of this validation that the feelings I have had prior to this are better understood or framed by what's happened in COVID. Is that, is that how you describe that? Yeah, I'd say validating is a great word for those clients who experience high levels of anxiety or high levels of not being able to function in the day-to-day world. This feels like their outside world matches their inside world. And they feel like finally somebody gets it. Finally, people are going to understand that mental health is legit. There's this big feeling for a lot of my clients, like my employer now understands that this is a real thing and they're not writing off my mental illness or my mental health struggles as just, oh, you're lazy, oh, you're incompetent, oh, you just need to work harder or buck up or bootstrap on. Yeah, I've personally experienced quite an increase in number of people reaching out to me who are my friends network and business networks who are just checking in with me. Are you okay? How are you doing? And it's something I'm not used to getting too much of. It's interesting how COVID has shaped that. Do you think that is driven by their own concerns or they actually really do care about me? (laughs) I think they really do care. And if they're anything like a regular person off the street, the first thing you think about is yourself and how you're feeling because you need to be okay. But the second thing you think about is your friends. Oh my gosh, if I'm not okay, then I know my friend's not going to be okay because I'm not okay. You mentioned you just started your practice at the the start of COVID. So you're probably a a COVID expert now at this point in terms of mental health. (laughs) What did you realize was going to have to change in the way you practiced? You know, maybe you came in with an assumption. Oh, I'm going to 
go about my approach to mental health counseling in a certain way? And have you had to adjust or change it based on the way COVID has affected us? Yes, for sure. My idea for starting my practice was to be so many days in office and then offer at least one day online to serve more people around the state of Washington. And then two weeks into my business, I was full-blown telemental health 24-7. And being able to pivot like most businesses are right now into serving the needs of my population where they're at and where they're at right now is needing more support. So my normal business hours were going to be two days a week. I now work four days a week and have set up specific times on the days I'm off to check in with clients. And there's a lot more of, oh, I need to give more because people need more being in a helping profession. Do you as as a mental health counselor find that it weighs on you? I, I don't mean to get too personal, but I guess do you carry those clients' concerns around with you, just like you said, you do check-ins? Or do you have a, a mechanism into which you sort of can compartmentalize that and not let it overwhelm you? So my ethics teacher would not like this answer. They would prefer that I compartmentalize. And when I leave work, I leave work. However, we are in unknown territory and it does weigh on me because the unique situation that every therapist is in right now is that we are going through the same thing our clients are going through and that takes its toll. So there are things that I do, like I do a lot more things that rejuvenate who I am as a person. So I paint or I make sure that I'm paying more attention to things like that, eating better, trying to move, trying to get enough sleep before my idea was, okay, I'm going to have this day off and I'm not going to look at anything and I'm going to completely pay attention to myself. And I still have that, but it's become so much more important than it was before. This is now a requirement instead of a desire to do that kind of self-care work. I like that term, self-care. It's something at Real Self we talk about a lot. I'm going to switch gears a little bit. I've been curious by some of my neighbors, because I'm you know, shelter in place and I, I walk around the, the block countless number of times and see neighbors who I have either seen rarely or never before, and now I see them all the time. And I'm always amazed how some individuals respond to COVID and the crisis in a way that's very different than another person. So one person's just like, eh, do you know why it's COVID-19? Or did you know there's 18 before that? And that's just, just the 19th. And so they're just like dismissive. There's others who are extremely fearful, but there's this wide range. And I just was wondering, since you get to speak with individuals with many different personality types coming from different cultural backgrounds, socioeconomic, do you see a pattern where the response is based on some factor in the person's makeup or the way they see the world? So it doesn't matter socioeconomic, gender, race, religion. This is hitting the same across the board. The thing that's making the difference with what I'm seeing from both my colleagues, their clientele and my clientele, is if someone's been through trauma before, what their coping skills are and their inner resiliency So that inner drive to get okay, be okay, and shift in the moment has been the biggest contributing factor to how people are managing right now. And resilience, I've used that word with our company because I think I believe the people I work with are incredibly resilient individuals as a team. 
we've been through a lot together. But I've done a little bit of research and talks about resilience as something that's a skill. It doesn't just either got it or you don't. Do you agree with that first? And if so, what do you counsel individuals so they can build up greater resilience? So I do think resiliency can be learned as a skill for sure. I think some people are born with a higher level of initial resiliency than others just because of who they are at their core. And we still are learning so much about personality and how that is made up or contributed by nature or nurture. We're still not sure on that debate where that's coming from. But some of the ways that I help people with their inner resiliency is really with coping skills and finding things that work for them to make them feel connected to themselves, connected to others, and figuring out how to, we call it filling your own cup, just being able to pour into what you need and what works for you and how you feel good as a human being. Yeah. One of my son's teachers has a saying about filling each other's buckets. Mm-hmm. And I always get to ask, did you help fill her bucket today? And sometimes the answer is, what? <laughs> what bucket? <laughs> but other times it's like, yeah, I did, which is great. I think that's awesome, building people up. You talked about coping. I'm just curious, are there specific tools that you can cite that help individuals who feel this level of anxiety, anxiousness that we were talking about earlier with covid that you think might be applicable to someone, even in our audience who you aren't speaking to directly, but indirectly? So the, the number one tool I teach clients is breathing. And I know that sounds super elementary and probably like, what, you're telling me to breathe? I, I can't catch my breath right now. How am I supposed to breathe? And the reason I talk about breathing and most therapists will talk about breathing and the breath and meditation combined with that is because there's so many things happening in the body when you take the time to actually take three good deep breaths. We have this nerve in our stomach diaphragm area called the polyvagal nerve. And when you push on it through breathing, you're actually releasing feel good chemicals into the body, which is why if you take those three deep breaths, you can go, oh, I feel better now. And because when we're breathing, just like right now, you and I, we're just breathing normally. We're not paying attention to our breath. We're not taking a moment to go. Oh, now I am. (laughs) (laughs) Well, now you are. You're like, okay, in through the nose. While while you're talking, I'm doing these deep breaths and I'm I'm just, it's great. (laughs) Yeah. And there's, there's all kinds of different methods to breathe. Like there's the deep yoga breaths, which is like dragon breathing, which is where you breathe in through one nostril and out through the other, and it calms the nervous system. There's also a technique called box breathing. And all you have to remember is the number four. Breathe in through the nose for four, hold for four, and breathe out through the mouth for four. And it's evidence has shown that doing that kind of breathing can re-regulate the nervous system. And when you have anxiety, you're in lizard brain 2.0 with no updates to the system since we were cavemen. And you're not able to get out of fight, flight, freeze, or fawn, which are the four stress responses. So when you breathe, you can actually take a step back, get out of that program of lizard brain 2.0 and come back to reality and be like, oh, I'm not a caveman anymore. Mm -hmm. I'm in this current day and I can assess what's going on around me. I love it. It's great. I'm thinking tonight I have to do my meditation. I've been trying to do that on an evening basis and you've inspired me to to go back to that because there's real science to it as well. 
Yes. And I know you work with quite a few doctors. For your doctors out there, anybody with an NPI can actually get Headspace, which is an amazing meditation app for free for a year due to COVID. So if that's something applicable to your audience, there are so many good apps like Calm. Even YouTube has some great meditations. The Honest Guys are really good. I recommend that to my clients all the time. And that's completely free through YouTube. They have things for 15 minutes to eight hours for when you sleep. So there are so many good tools out there, especially technology-wise, that can help with breathing, meditation, and figuring out what coping skills work and don't work. What about tools that are in more of the pharmaceutical space. I've been talking to friends and doctors and there is no shortage of people saying, wow, I've never consumed more alcohol than this period. In fact, I think they have reported that sales of alcoholic beverages, not in bar situations, but you know, for home, has increased significantly with COVID. Clearly, that's one mechanism people are turning to. But instead of me asking, is that good for you? Because I know you're going to say, oh, you shouldn't do... Well, I, I assume <laughs> you're going to say, that's not really great. But... Maybe there is some element of it helping you reach a place that you can reduce some anxiety. Tell me what you believe. So a coping skill is a coping skill. Doesn't matter what it is, but there are maladaptive, which are not great for you coping skills, and there are adaptive coping skills. So if you need a drink of wine or some beer when you go to bed at night, First off, make sure it's at dinner and not at bed because that'll disrupt your sleep cycle. But there is science behind why it's helping and the reason why alcohol, marijuana, which are both legal in the state of Washington, are helping is because they're depressants and they're physically calming the body down. You can get the same benefits from alcohol and from marijuana through breathing and through meditation or through CBD. I'm a big fan of that. I always recommend to anybody, one, I'm not a doctor, and two, go see your primary care or whoever prescribes your medication before starting using that as a supplement to mental health. Recently at Real Self, we had to reduce the size of our organization and it was a really tough day this past week and letting go of really great people on our team. And it was hard for everyone. Those affected, obviously, those who remain at the organization. One individual came to me and said they were struggling a bit. I didn't really characterize a bit, but they said they were struggling with a, sort of a survivor guilt aspect. And I just was wondering, is that something that you've encountered before in your counseling? And if so, how would that individual best cope with that as well as what can I do to be a little bit more helpful when somebody mentions that to me as an issue? Survivor's guilt is very common with any kind of situation that happens in life, whether it's a car accident, being in a company where there's been a lot of downsizing or restructuring, that's very common. So one of the big things behind survivor's guilt is just that feeling of guilt and this existential, like, why me? Why did I make it? And what the person most normally is looking for is validation that yes, you are good at what you do. This is the reason you were kept. This does not mean that the people who left were not valuable or needed. And it's an extremely hard call to make as an employer to let someone go, especially if you just went through a major restructuring or downsizing to get through COVID. So a lot of validation of feelings is a big thing. It's the same from kids to adults. They want their feelings heard and validated. 
Yeah. It wasn't presented to me in a way that I had a reaction like, wow, why would you feel that? I just felt less equipped to know how to be more helpful. That's something I guess across the board for people who are in positions like say a manager, or in my case, I'm a CEO or a business owner. What could we be doing to be more validating or supportive to individuals who are really struggling through the COVID crisis? So in the position of being a business owner, manager, supervisor, having a policy where if your person is struggling, if your employee is struggling, having kind of an open door, like, hey, you can come talk to me. A lot of times in organizations, there's this feeling of, oh my gosh, if I tell my boss I'm struggling, I'm going to get fired or it's going to go down in my permanent record or they're going to call HR in, when most oftentimes that's not the case. And people just want to be able to say out loud what they're feeling Because when we have to bottle feelings inside of ourselves, they grow and magnify and become unmanageable at times. And so being an open door policy for when people are struggling is going to be really beneficial as an employer and being able to really listen to what they are concerned with. Because oftentimes we go into a situation where we're not listening to understand, we're listening to react. Yes. And if you're listening to react you're not really hearing the person. And it can be extremely difficult, whether you're in a relationship, whether you're at work, whether you're with your children, to listen to understand instead of listen to react. Yeah, I for sure have a tendency to listen to fix. Mm -hmm. And my wife will say, oh, I wasn't looking for you to fix this situation I'm talking about. I just wanted to talk about it. Yes. And I was like, oh, wow. I got to get better at listening. I think listening is so much harder than people want to give it credit. (laughs) Because if you're listening to truly understand, most of the time people just want you to listen. They just want you to really hear them and give you their undivided attention. Sometimes that's all they need. Yeah. It's that tendency to always want to take that information, do something with it. And sometimes you don't need to. That's a good segue to, I sort of alluded to family and what I've discovered, and I think this is shared by many, is suddenly we're all shoved together into our our home. I have little children running around. Their school is sort of semi-connected to them with now screens. And I'm working from home every day, something that's new. And we're all just jammed together and, and we really can't go anywhere. Right. And I guess I don't want empathy. I just say that's the situation. And I know others are really at different degrees of struggling with that, particularly single moms and others who are much more strapped or people who still have to work their hourly jobs away from home. And is there anything that you would be counseling folks who are feeling a high degree of anxiety and discomfort with the new normal like that? that would be helpful beyond the tactics of breathing, but are there some sort of rule setting in the household or new models of framing the way everybody lives together so it's healthier and happier? So there's a couple of things that I have been recommending. One is lowering expectations because one of the reasons we feel so anxious is because we have this bar set for ourselves, our family, our children, our jobs, our performance, and it's not realistic. If you're a a mom right now who is finding herself as caregiver, worker, teacher, and you're expecting still to put the same kind of meals on the table that you did before, it's okay for mac and cheese to happen two nights in a row. You've got other things you got to focus on. And with 
couples, I think there's this expectation that, oh, we're home together. So we need to make the most of this time with each other. We should really be doing things. And sometimes that's not going to happen. And that's okay. It's okay. If you're fighting with your spouse right now, it's okay. If it doesn't feel good, your routine has been completely disrupted. So working with those unrealistic expectations and getting to a place where, oh, I don't have to work out and come out of this with a new skill and be a five-star chef and have learned a new thing to get me promoted in my job. It's okay to come out of this without that. And one of the things I suggest for parents is figuring out if structure is going to help or harm. Some kids do really great with structure and they crave it. Others, depending on their age, really don't. And listening to your kids, just asking your kids, hey, we've got this extra time at home right now. What would you love to do more with mom or dad or whoever the caregiver is? What would you like to do with this time? And if they say, oh, I want to spend more time coloring, okay, let's color. If they want to watch a movie more often and you really limit screen time, maybe for right now explaining that this is a special circumstance and that that's okay for the moment and shifting into where you not only feel in survival mode, but can make the most of this time, however that works for your family. Thank you for that. That was super helpful. And I was already applying some of those to my own homestead, (laughs) or I will be. When you and I were talking about sort of the differences and how people respond to COVID in terms of, you know, some are very anxious and others are just super calm. It seems like for parenting, if one is very concerned and says, you know, we are going to be completely social distancing and another saying, ah, it's no big deal, that could cause some significant tension. Is there a mechanism that would help broker the differences in parenting perspective as it comes to like, we never thought as parents, we would have to think about, well, what do we do in a pandemic? Right. So... There's this wonderful tool called State of the Union for couples or for really anybody in a relationship. This can be adopted for kids, can be adopted for work. And it's where you sit down, you schedule out a half an hour and you limit it to a half an hour because past that people start to get upset or too in their heads or obsessive. And you begin to ask the person, you know, things like for a week to week State of the Union, what's coming up in your week? What do you need help with? How can I support you? And doing that listening to understand instead of the listening to react and having some form of the state of the union with your partner, significant other and going, okay, what is a non-negotiable for you? So things like maybe your partner is really against going to the store when unnecessary. Okay, we can plan around that. We can make sure that our grocery trips really do meet two or three weeks and do one big run. Or if you have a backyard and you don't feel like your kids should be out there because COVID is outside, seeing if that's a non-negotiable or if there's some way to work around that. One of the things you mentioned earlier was you see a big shift, obviously, toward telecare, remote meetings with your clients. A lot of the doctors we work with are starting to offer that as well for the first time. Mm -hmm. And I was just wondering, is there any advice you would offer to someone who, a doctor who's just for the first time starting to talk to potential patients about their services, questions they should be asking that go back to the validating or acknowledging the concerns that people may be feeling right now and is associated to COVID? 
So for doctors who are seeing their clients possibly for the first time via telehealth, one of the things I would highly recommend is doing like a three question check-in and that can be tailored to whatever kind of specialty you have as a doctor. If you're a cardiologist, you know, have you found your heart racing lately? How do you feel when you're resting? How do you feel when you're active? And using that as kind of like a tiny movement into the mental health realm, because we know what affects the mind affects the body. And if doctors are not doing a mental health check-in or screening of some sort, they might be missing out on a really great way to connect with their clients because it's rare to find a doctor who not only cares about your physical health, but your mental well-being as well. So that might be a great way to not only keep clients and patients that you already have, but make the connection with new ones is really building that relationship and saying, hey, are you feeling anxious? Are you feeling depressed? What's going on in your life that's really hard for you right now? Do you feel that that's contributing to your symptoms that are going on? Yeah, I think mental health clearly it was already a factor before when going to your doctor, or talking to a doctor, but maybe didn't get brought into the conversation. Just seems sort of indelibly connected now to the state of our well being. As you said earlier, that's sort of a uh, a collective understanding happening in the world that mental health is not something that's for a limited segment of the population, but it's actually universal. Yeah. So this may sound odd, but my biggest hope for this pandemic is that mental health is realized to be as important and as equal to physical health. Because if you have someone sitting in your office and you're a doctor and you're seeing they're gaining weight, they're not feeling good all the time, they're not sleeping, and you're asking all these physical questions and you're not asking about their mental health, you could be missing out on depression, you could be missing out on anxiety. And this may be one more time the client has faced stigma where they feel uncomfortable and unable to say, hey, this is how I'm struggling. How do I get help? And I think a really good pivot for a lot of doctors out there would be to start reaching out to mental health counselors and building relationships to them to have someone they know and trust and can go like, oh, I know this great therapist. Oh, I know this great counselor. Here's what they specialize in. And here's how you can get help for that. Or let's have the conversation about medication combined with therapy or exercise and how this boosts your mental health and will boost your physical health at the same time. Fantastic advice. This may be a little bit crystal ball and a little unfair because how this plays out, how long this plays out as we sit here today, April 2020, someday somebody will listen to this and go, oh, you guys didn't know this was going to happen. You know, so right. But we really sit in a moment where we don't know how this all plays out. But if you had to predict from a mental health perspective, what do you believe is going to be either the new normal or something that just is not going to go back to the way it was before COVID hit us on a global scale. So I think telehealth is going to become much more normal for therapists, for doctors, for any kind of practitioner in the helping profession. I think this is going to become so much more normal. The waiting room might not be a thing anymore. You might have your check-in online. I heard a doctor yesterday say it to me saying, well, right now we're just trying to figure out what to do with this beautiful oversized waiting room. Yeah, that might not be a thing anymore. I think on the mental health side, I can't speak to the doctor side of things. The wave is coming. 
And my colleagues and I have all had the talk of, okay, everybody's hands need to be on deck because the tidal wave of mental health is coming. For us to be prepared, there has been a big scramble on the therapist side of things to make sure that we can adjust and pivot to what's happening and to be able to serve when we're needed because we are not frontline workers by any means because we're not doctors, we're not nurses. However, we do still deal with a part of the body that's being affected by this. So once the physical symptoms and stressors are gone, you're going to see the mental stressors. People are going to have difficulty leaving their house. People are going to have difficulty connecting in person again, because we've had to learn how to connect via video. And that's hard. And there's this universal feeling of loneliness that's coming up for people and they don't know how to deal with it. So figuring out how to feel more connected when we do go back to being in person again and not being just online and via video is going to be a major transition. It seems like that given the the wave of demand for your expertise and those of your peers, you're going to have to explore scalable solutions, ways to, to address more people than in one-on-one situations. Is there something you're thinking about in those realm or... Does that just go against sort of the way you've been trained and the way you want to operate? No, I feel for myself, and I can't speak for any of my colleagues, that I'm going to have to offer bigger solutions to my clients, not only with one-on-one sessions, but also with groups, especially after this begins to calm down being able to offer group therapy sessions more often for people to not feel so lonely or disconnected and to share their experiences with others. Because one of the things that's happening now with COVID is we're all alone. Physically, we are all alone in our homes. Even if you have a partner, you still may be feeling very alone. So being able to help people reconnect through group therapy, which is just as valid as individual therapy and being able to provide more Like I have an Instagram and I've been doing for the last, for 30 days I did, here's a mental health tip or trick for every day of COVID. And then I'm doing a 30 day series right now on just introducing coping skills. So things like that, I think are going to be a pivot. I think social media is going to get bigger for therapists. I think YouTube's going to get bigger. You can already see for my colleagues who are tracking their social media and their YouTube, people are hitting that up more versus hitting up a therapist because there is this thought that therapy is too expensive and not worth someone's time versus, oh, I can go on YouTube and I can see this person talk about social anxiety or depression or regular anxiety and how I can deal with that. I think the, well, let me just speak from a personal perspective. I've in the past looked for some access to mental health counseling for our family. And I found it to be very difficult. Most recommendations from others was greeted by over a closed practice. And there was really limited access points, it seemed like. My wife and I just gave up on that quest. Do you have any tips on how to actually find a good therapist, how to find one that's still taking clients? Or as you mentioned earlier, identifying groups that you could join that allow you to still access the care, but maybe shared with others? Sure. It is hard to find a therapist, especially one who you feel is going to meet your needs. There's listing sites. The common listing sites here in Seattle are 
therapyden.com and psychology today. And on psychology today right now, and I believe on therapy den as well, there's actually a header that says for COVID-19 who people are taking, if people are taking, and then you can click on, okay, this person's taking new clients and see what they work with. I like the listing sites to begin to find the search for a therapist because you can refine by insurance, by challenges you're facing, whether you want family therapy, couples therapy, individual therapy. And then I think Google, (laughs) you can always Google therapists near me and you can get pretty specific with that. Like I practice EMDR. So if someone were to search EMDR therapist in Seattle, I would come up. Or if you know you're dealing with anxiety, anxiety therapists near me. A good way to kind of get into the headspace of the therapist and see if they're a good fit for you is seeing if they have a free consultation. A lot of therapists do 15 to 30 minute consultations for free and having questions you need answered on the phone. Like how long have you worked with anxiety? What's your clinical background with depression? Do you use a certain type of therapy and seeing if that therapy is something that would work for you? But the biggest difference in if you're going to get things out of therapy or not is the personality match. I've had clients come to me who say, oh my gosh, you are just so like me and they get better. It's not what I do therapy model wise, like EMDR. It's who I am that I'm listening to understand and that they feel comfortable and safe with me. So if you go to a therapist and you don't feel comfortable and safe, it's okay to therapist shop. You need to get that right match for you. That just led me to a couple quick wrap up questions. Hopefully they're not too lengthy, but one thing that sprung to mind while you're expressing the the way to go find a a therapist was, well, are there tricks, tips that you would have that you'd suggest you could share that would be like, wow, if a therapist ever says X, run for the door or hang up right away. Or is there something that, and I don't mean to be negative, but I understand the positive of finding a match, but are there things that a therapist should really absolutely that you might see someone do and you're like, ooh, that is just not the right way to run a counseling service. If a therapist becomes defensive when you ask a question, that's the biggest sign for me to run. And I'm in personal therapy. I think every therapist is usually in personal therapy because we have so much to manage. And when I'm looking for a therapist, if they become defensive when I ask them certain things like, oh, why do you practice that? Or can you tell me why you pick this? Or if you feel uncomfortable and you go to challenge the therapist like, hey, this isn't working for me and they get defensive, that's my personal run for the hills. A question I ask every guest is, is there something people should be asking you and don't? And I think you might have identified one area of how do I know if you're a bad fit for me? But is there anything else that as we're wrapping up our conversation that you sort of think would be healthy for us to be asking more often of whether it's a therapist or each other? Just something that you wish you heard more of. I wish I heard more clients ask me, what am I going to see when I get better from your side? Because often I see things before clients do. So I see clients making improvement before they do. So what are you going to see when I get better? And from the therapist side of things, having a therapist ask you, well, how are you going to know when you're better? What would you like to see? And that tells a therapist what you're goals are and how they can help you or if they can't help you. And a good therapist is going to say to you, hey, you might not be the best fit for me, but I know somebody else who could really help you. Yeah, I think that's true in lots of forms of medicine where sometimes the best doctors are the ones who say no. 
I can't support that or help you. And let me try to help you find the right person. Yeah, that's been really key for my biggest priority as a therapist is to provide the best care for my clients. And if I know I can't help them, I want to send them to someone I know who I know works with their issue. And doctors, I'm sure, are very much the same way because do no harm is the first thing. Absolutely. Well, Laura, how can my audience connect with you, find you online? You mentioned uh, Instagram and other resources that you've been utilizing to share your expertise and to connect with people at scale. Do you mind sharing? Oh, not at all. So I have an Instagram, which is at Lanyap, which I'll spell because it's it's a Southern Louisiana word. So it's French pronounced. It's L-A-G-N-I-A-P-P-E-E-M-D-R. That's my Instagram. And then it's the same thing for the website, lanyapemdr.com. I know a lot of therapists are putting really good content out there right now for blogs. So searching for blogs that are specific to your interests would be really good too. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. And I guess I'd be remiss to not ask, are you still accepting clients? I am. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I am. All right. Excellent. I'm sure you might get a few inquiries from this, hopefully. But uh, this has been a pleasure. And I thank you for spending your time with Hey Siri. Oh, thank you so much for having me. The best way to reach me is just send an email to heysiri at realself.com. That's H-E-Y-S-E-E-R-Y at realself.com. We look at every single message that comes in and respond. And if you have feedback that's positive, love it. Challenges, even better. Want to be a guest, even more delightful. So please get in touch with us. Want to know more from what's working, what's not.